You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 12, page 1034 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you is where you will find Revelation 12. If you've come to Ascend for any amount of time, you know that my default is for a non-liturgical holiday, I don't adjust what I'm preaching. I simply preach the next passage, and this Sunday is no different. So even though we celebrate the ladies of our church, even though we celebrate moms, I am not preaching on motherhood, although an elder did tell me that in this passage is a mother, so I hope you can find her as I read the chapter. Revelation 12, verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, hint, hint, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb." And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman 
and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) So what's the point of this chapter? Well, the best way I can summarize it is by referencing my love for Disney princess movies. Now, guys, I still have my man card. And yes, I have three daughters, but I have to confess that my love for Disney princess movies was even before I became a dad. And yes, I have a younger sister, but it even is despite that. I love Disney princess movies because of these stories. And one of my favorites is the animation that came out in 1991 that had a ballroom scene where a teapot sang, Tale as old as time. And that's Beauty and the Beast. I even like that phrase because it captures what Disney is famous for, and that is telling the same story over and over and over again with slightly different details, and we spend a ton of money on them. But the point is valid, isn't it? That no matter how much the details or the characters or the context appear to change, it's actually a tale as old as time. And I submit to you that that is the effort that John is making in chapter 12. If chapter 11, 15 through 19, is the epicenter of the main point of all of redemptive history, if those verses, as I proposed last week, are the epicenter of the book of Revelation, then I think chapter 12 is a high-level summary for the tale that has been completing as old as time. Look at the big idea in your notes that the details of the tale as old as time equip every generation of believers with exactly what we need to be informed and gain confidence so that we can conquer the serpent. And if you've been with us, you probably say, well, isn't that pretty much the big idea of every message? Yes. So if you're new to Ascend or you're new to this Revelation study and you think, man, we're at the middle of Revelation, I should probably jump ship. Don't, because the book of Revelation is a continuation of the same play over and over and over again from different angles and at different speeds, all for the purpose of reminding us what we need to conquer and endure the serpent. After all, I would submit to you that that's the point of apocalyptic prophecy. And so Revelation, as we've discussed, is the majority apocalyptic as literature. Now, typically, when we hear that term, we think that apocalyptic prophecy is completely about the end times, or it also includes fanciful imagery. And surely, as we've been walking through Revelation, we see that there is that, but I don't think that's the ultimate point of apocalyptic prophecy. In fact, here's a quote from a author. Jim Hamilton says that apocalyptic literature intends to insist on absolute divine sovereignty being worked out in a predetermined plan. Apocalyptic 
prophecy insists on absolute divine sovereignty being worked out in a predestined plan. So whether it's the book of Revelation, whether it's the portions of Ezekiel that are apocalyptic, whether it's Daniel, whether it's Zechariah, what apocalyptic prophecy is, is not so much focused on the end, not so focused on how fanciful can the descriptions be, but instead reminding the readers, reminding the audience, reminding us today that God's got this. And not only do he got this, that's horrible English, but he's actually ordained it. And what an amazing reminder that is to us, so that no matter what we see on the news, no matter what we're experiencing in our lives, no matter the impact of the corrupted world or our own sin in our own lives, we remember that this is all part of God's plan. It's all designed by him. He is ultimately the one in control. We can go to his words to actually see what he intends and what he's doing, and that's intended to give us confidence. That's apocalyptic prophecy. And I hope you've seen that in our study of Revelation. And if not, behold chapter 12. So essentially, chapter 12 is the tale as old as time. We'll look at four aspects of this amazing continual story. And that is the protagonists, which I was reminded from somebody from first service to explain what that is. Protagonist is a lead character in a story. The peak or the climax of this amazing story, the parameters of the tale as old as time, and then finally the pattern of this magnificent tale. Let's first look at the protagonists, beginning in verse 1. Now, before we do, what you've noticed about Revelation is that John is using sevens, descriptions of sevens for a purpose. And I would submit to you that he's giving sevens to explain the the, the patterns of a significant and specific period of time, but he's also doing something else. I, I reached out to a professor of mine from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I just asked him, he's, a, he's an expert on Revelation, he wrote a commentary that I'm studying, he preached through Revelation, and I just asked him, I, I think that I might need to slow down. He said, you know, Jeff, you could, but he said, I, I would encourage you not to slow down for two reasons. The first one is that it helps us understand the context. If I spend 10 sermons on chapter 12, it could be easy for us to miss the context of chapter 12. One of my favorite pastors preached three messages on two words. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with doing that, but in Revelation, this professor is saying there's, there's value and going through it at the pace that we are so that we can actually see the context. But actually, there's a second reason, and I knew this conceptually, but he worded it so well, and that is that John is actually interpreting the story of the Old Testament rightly. So if you have ever struggled with understanding the Old Testament, I think Revelation is a a tool for us to understand the, the flow of the Old Testament. What are the purposes of the Garden of Eden, the patriarchs, kings and priests and prophets in Israel, and prophecies of future for Israel and future for all time, that John's actually going back through the Old Testament and interpreting it well. And if I slow down at a crawl space pace, it might... Keep us from understanding that. And so we'll continue for the foreseeable future at this pace. 
But John is using sevens to share about this period of time, but also to interpret the Old Testament. He's talked about seven seals first. And remember, the seven seals focused in on four horses and four riders. Remember that? Which goes back to Zechariah. And then the the trumpets actually focus on the plagues of Egypt and draws our attention back to that. We'll anticipate seven bulls, and if you've studied Revelation, you know that's the expected next seven, but I didn't realize this. This is a section of a different seven. And these are seven scenes that will actually interpret and review the tale as old as time from seven vantage points. So let's look at the protagonists in these first three verses. The first one is introduced to us in verse 1, the lead character of the woman. Verse 1 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And it says she was pregnant and she was in pain in her labor. I don't know about you, I want to know who this woman is. And if all we're doing is reading this verse and these verses, and all we're looking at is peering ahead to the next few verses, we might be tempted to say the woman is Mary, because as you see the child, we recognize that the child is Christ, and so we might immediately draw the conclusion, this woman is Mary. But remember, when we study the Bible, we don't just study a verse, we study the surrounding verses, we study the entire book, but we also look at the whole scripture. And when we do that, it's an interesting discovery, I think. We'll put this up on the screen, but let's first of all look at some other passages that use similar descriptions in the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, 17 through 18, talks about a woman who's in pain in her labor, and that is describing symbolically the nation of Israel. Isaiah 51, 2 through 3, and 9 through 11 actually take this concept in Isaiah and advance it to more of a broad perspective to say, well, this is actually spiritual Israel. It's Zion specifically. But then when we go back to Genesis 37, 9 through 10, we see Joseph explain his dream to Jacob, whose name was also what? Israel. That included these symbols that included the 12 brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, and we can conclude that initially, as the writers of the Old Testament were describing the furniture in the room, remember, I'm I'm using that as an analogy for all of redemptive history, that if we were to think of this room as all of redemptive history from beginning to end, the authors of Scripture are describing the furniture, describing the room, but in the Old Testament, the light is very low. And so they're describing what John is describing with a dimly lit room. And as the light of Scripture begins to turn up, we see that, oh, this is not actually ethnic Israel because even the text in Revelation 12, the woman is also including New Testament saints. You see that in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. We'll get there in a moment. And also in chapter 21, verse 11. But then we have to go all the way back to the beginning to tie this together. Do you remember back in Genesis 3, verse 15, as God is giving out all of the judgments for the fall of Adam and Eve, he says with great expectation that there will be an offspring of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head. This is the seed that he is planting, as it were, 
of what the end is going to look like. That one day there will be a a seed from the woman who will destroy evil and bring all of this to completion. But the very next verse in Genesis 3.16 talks about pain from child labor. And so when we put all of these concepts together... I believe we can conclude that what John is doing with the light of revelation completely turned up, with Jesus himself teaching John about these last things, with Jesus himself coming to earth and doing the victory that we'll read in just a couple of verses, I think it's safe to conclude from all of Scripture that the woman being described here is believers of all time. Believers up to Abraham. Abraham to Christ and the church, believers of all time. There's no separation. There's no different groups that will be in heaven. It was always intended to be one group, but the light has continued to come up. And John is saying here that the woman that he's describing in this tale of old, as old as time is believers of all time, but in this period specifically focusing on the church. We'll get to that in a minute. Second protagonist is verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Who is this? Well, maybe you would answer because a pastor's told you. Maybe you would answer because you've read in a book, or maybe you've studied it yourself, but let's go to Scripture and see how does the Bible use the imagery of a dragon. Well, you can write down Ezekiel 29 and verse 3, where the enemies of ethnic Israel are described as a dragon. Psalm 73, 13, the imagery of dragon there translated Leviathan describes in summary all of the enemies of God and his people. And then we also see in this chapter, John tells us plainly, verse 9, Satan, the deceiver, the serpent. He continues to tie to the Old Testament in his description of the second protagonist, again, lead character of the story. He says that this great red dragon had seven heads. I think Daniel leans heavily. John leans heavily on Daniel. In fact, last week, remember I, I said that I think Revelation is a chiasm. That's what the X is from the Greek letter chi. And it's a literary device that authors would use to have the beginning and the end parallel each other, and you parallel, parallel, parallel until you come to the middle, and that's the main point of what the author is writing. That's what I think 11, 15 through 19 is in Revelation, and I think Daniel is also a chiasm. So it's no wonder that he's going back to Daniel in even his imagery here with the seven heads and the ten horns describing the fourth beast's of Daniel 7. It's also interesting that both Daniel and Revelation, and and this is interesting, whenever a beast is described with multiple heads, it describes typically one kingdom. Isn't that interesting? So here, as he's saying that this dragon has multiple heads, he's describing one kingdom, and I think, as we'll get to verse 4, that he's actually saying the world system is being motivated and being used by this great dragon, Satan himself. So we've got the woman who is believers of all time, specifically in this context, the church, The red dragon, who is the enemy of God's people, Satan himself. And then there's a third protagonist or lead character. And we're introduced to that child 
and that character in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child. What's interesting about this in the original is that there's emphasis given here. Just trying to see if anybody's awake. In the original, it actually says she gave birth to a son, a male. Why? Wouldn't it have been enough for John to say she gave birth to a son? Why in the original, a son, a male? Well, we think we know, but let's be informed by Scripture. You can write down Isaiah 9, verse 6. We sing this around Christmas, or at least let others sing it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The Old Testament grew in expectation by giving more details as the light came on in the room to what the furniture actually is, what the plan of God's redemptive history actually is. And this is a raising of the light in Isaiah 9 that it will be a son that is the offspring of the woman. But then John gives more detail in verse 5. This son, this male child who is to, what does the text say? Rule. But if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, you probably have a footnote. Look at what that footnote says. Literally in the original language, it says he will shepherd. You can write down 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4 where it says by the Apostle Peter that Jesus is the chief shepherd. It says in verse 5 of Revelation 12 that this child will shepherd the nations. And we see that seed planted in the Old Testament. We see the light begin to come up. We see the furniture being described in the Old Testament that there will be a ruler who will rule the nations, Daniel 7, verse 14. It's important to know the characters of the story, isn't it? Some of the greatest movies and books in story form that we love are because there's a great development of the characters and what John is doing here is doing just that. With the tale as old as time, he is developing these characters by drawing from the Old Testament so that we understand the reality of what's going on around us. And he's echoing what Paul said in Ephesians 6. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 6? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against authorities, against spiritual rulers in high places. John is doing the same thing Paul is doing by letting us know that as the story continues to unfold, there's something bigger going on here. It's not coincidence. As you watch the news, as you look at legislation, as you look at social media, as you experience your own realities of your life that are impacted by a corrupt fallen world, as you experience your own sin, they're pulling back the curtains to say, this is what's behind the story. There's three protagonists. There's the woman, the people of faith. There's the child that enables that faith. And then there's this dragon who continues to over and over and over again try to defeat the child. But I did mention something that I want to make sure we understand, that if you are going to be the protagonist of the woman, it means you must have faith. That faith must be depending your salvation upon the completed work of Christ. So where do you find yourself in this story? There are three protagonists, but then number two, there is a peak to the story. There is a climax to the story. And so we'll put an image up on the screen. You've probably seen this before, but this is the arc of a narrative. 
And I know this is oversimplified. There's different peaks and valleys, but essentially, I think that's what John is saying in verses four through six, is that there is a peak event in the tale as old as time. The peak is begun to describe, he begins to describe the peak in verse four, that this dragon swept his tail down and a third of the stars of heaven cast them to the earth. And we want to ask, what does this mean? Who are the stars? What is the tail? And so before we would just simply say, who is it based on this text, we need to look at the rest of Scripture. Would you write down Daniel chapter 8 and verse 10? Again, I think John is referring to and depending on Daniel. Listen to this vocabulary in Daniel 8 verse 10. It grew great. This is one of the horns described in verse 9 even to the host of heaven and some of the host of the heaven and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Sounds similar to the vocabulary that John is using in Revelation 12, doesn't it? Now, as we look at the most immediate direct fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, most scholars believe that that was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Seleucid king in the time between the Old and the New Testament. He was famous for going into Jerusalem and sacrificing a pig, the most referred to as the abomination of desolation, and that incited the Maccabees to revolt and to be able to have the Maccabean revolt. And so the most direct fulfillment of Daniel 8 is likely that event. But I think what Daniel's doing by using that same vocabulary is saying, look, just as Antiochus Epiphanes was being used by the dragon So that is continued with the climax in what he's describing. So what does he mean? He means that the dragon has influenced the world system through kingdoms, through nations, through powers to continually attack the child and his followers. But there was one time when he rallied his troops and the climax of the narrative occurred, and that's what he's describing here. Verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. We saw in verse 5 that the child is Christ. And in verse 5, John describes the 33-plus years of Jesus' ministry in one verse. The child was born, the child was caught up to heaven and to his throne. What I love about this is it reminds us that the dragon did not win. The child was taken up to the throne. We know that because we have read the Gospels, but also we have a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verse 20. But in fact, Christ did rise from the grave. Amen? That is our hope. That is the climax. That is the, all of the efforts, and we'll see that beginning in verse 7 of what the efforts actually were. All of the efforts of the dragon all culminated in this one climactic peak event. But the child was not devoured. Now, now remember the arc of the narrative. There's more to the story after the peak, isn't there? And I think that's what verse 6 is describing. The woman, the people of God, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. What does that mean? 
Well, as we've been following Revelation, as we look at prophetic literature in the Bible, we know that the default is not typically to see these days as calendar events, calendar days, literal. Doesn't mean that I don't take any, anything else in the Bible literally. It just means that typically in prophetic literature, and especially apocalyptic, apocalyptic prophetic, when days are given, there's a symbolic meaning to them. And I think what this is saying is that what is being described, while this is a tale as old as time from Genesis to the second coming of Christ, he's focusing in on a period of time that began with Jesus' resurrection and continues until he sets up his final eternal kingdom. What would I use in the text to continue to advance that? Look at this word, wilderness. Do you see it in verse 6? Where is a significant section of the Bible story that involved wilderness? The Jews coming out of Egypt. And I think that parallel of the Jews in the wilderness is what John is using to describe what that period of time, that 1260 days, he'll explain it later, it's time, times, and half a time. I don't think this is three and a half years. I don't think this is 24 hour, 1260 day periods. I think he's just saying, look, there is a period of time that God is controlling that he knows exactly down to the minute detail how long it's going to last. He's completely in control. But that period of time will be a period of wilderness, just like the Jews in Egypt. What did that look like? Here's a quote on the screen. The wilderness meant that they weren't in bondage. They were journeying to the promised land. They had God's presence. The destination was certain, but there were still many trials and tests, weren't there? What a reminder that is for us in this period of time. I don't think this is talking about seven literal years. I don't think this is talking about three and a half literal years. I think this is talking about the period of time from the resurrection to the eternal kingdom to remind us that as the church, we are in this wilderness. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when there's trials and testing. Remember, we have God's presence. Remember, our destination is certain. Remember what that destination is, and we'll see that specifically in chapters 21 and 22. So just like Wile E. Coyote from the Looney Tunes cartoons, the dragon continually tries to defeat the child, and his ultimate climactic peak opportunity, it appeared that he won but the reality is he lost. So that's the peak of the story. We've seen the protagonist. Number three, we need to see the parameters of the tale as old as time for what remains. After the peak, what are the parameters? And I think what John's doing here is what other authors of Scripture did, specifically Moses. Remember back in Genesis 1? Moses describes in Genesis 1 the entire creation event. But in chapter 2, he drills down into the sixth day. I think that's what John is doing. He's explaining the tale as old as time in verses 1 through 6. And now in verse 7, he's going to drill down into that peak event. Verse 7 says, now war arose in heaven. And then all of a sudden, we have this, per this character that's introduced that we're like, what? It says, Michael and his angels were fought, fighting against the dragon. Anybody wonder why Michael is introduced to us? Daniel chapter 10, verse 21. 
describes that Michael has been involved in spiritual warfare for generation after generation after generation. And so once again, we would expect in the peak event where the the protagonist, the dragon, goes against the protagonist child, that Michael would be involved. And that's what's describing. War arose in heaven. This is not the the creation fall of of Satan, but instead the actual peak of Satan trying to defeat the child. And so the dragon and the angels fought back. How do we know that? Because look at verse 8. He was defeated, and it's not just that. Look at the next phrase. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. That's important because Satan did have access to the throne room in the Old Testament, didn't he? You can write down Job 1, 6 through 11. The sons of God presented themselves to the Lord and Satan was there with him. So I think what John is describing is after this peak event, Satan and his demons no longer have direct access as they did in the past to the throne room of God where they continually deceived and Satan continually uh, accused the people of God. We also see in Daniel 10 that even though Michael is a superior angel, he was always under the authority of his captain, Jesus, the Son of Man. This is a tale as old as time, and it continues after the peak event of the crucifixion because of the resurrection. I'll just give us a moment to breathe for a moment. I love video games. I'm going to bring you into the 21st century. I love video games. And, and, I, and, I, and I love them because you can become a Jedi. Which, by the way, green is the best color for a lightsaber. You can go back to World War II and get a sense of what it was like. You can even make it to the major leagues. <laughs> but, but the reality is that no matter how great the graphics get, no matter how great the sound is, no matter how immersive the TV and the controller are, there are still parameters with that. And the parameters are set up by the programmers. And I think that's what this section is teaching us, that even though there's a battle that continues to rage, even though we're continuing to live in the wilderness, the fact is the ultimate programmer has set up parameters, and that's what's unpacked here. Verse 6, there's a limited time, described as 1,260 days. Verse 14, described as time, times, half a time. Again, not saying these are literal. Why? Because of the apocalyptic literature. Because of how John has been developing this. Because of how prophets in the Old Testament develop us. What he's doing is he's moving us beyond wanting to set time charts out and looking to see it's God who's ordering this. God is completely in control. And in fact, verse 10 says, now has come his salvation. Now has come his power. Now has come his authority and the kingdom. But, but, he, but he wants us to understand the way the programmer has made this is even though we now have a down payment on it, even though it started now, it's not complete. So God is in control. And even though Ephesians 2 says that Satan here on earth is the prince of the power of the air who is still sovereign in authority, God. And so Jesus actually alluded to this in Mark 1, 14 and 15. The content of his message was constantly, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But as he continued to unpack this, like with the woman at the well, in John 4, he's explaining, yeah, but not the way you understand it, not the way you define it. And John is just continuing that. 
It also reminds us of the powerful enemy that we have. Verse 12, Satan's furious. His domain is the earth. He's active in our realm. But verse 12 says it will be for a limited time, which when you look at 1260 days, that does sound like a relatively short amount of time, doesn't it? From heaven's perspective, it is. God's people in this wilderness time will be persecuted. In fact, it says that there are some who will end up dying, verse 11, for they loved not their lives unto death. But here's what I love. There's there's two phrases in here. Oh, would you see this? Would you please see this? Because this is our hope, that in this time, in the wilderness, even though it's getting bad, even though our our enemy is powerful, even though some, even in this room, might lose their lives because of the gospel, look at the hope that we have. Verse 11, they have conquered him. Again, don't put our projection on that. Let the Bible describe what conquered looks like because the the enemy is still active. We're still in the wilderness, but we have conquered him. And And you look at this and you say, this is a dragon. He's been at work and look what he's done against God's people throughout all time and specifically the church. Look at how this has played out. How can we, measly us, say that we could conquer him? Because of the next phrase, by the blood of the lamb. Oh, friend, have you been covered by the blood of the Lamb? Oh, it requires your faith. It requires your response. It requires your repentance. It requires your response, your commitment. You have to lay it all down. You have to lose your life, and when you do, you save it. And and how you can tell if you're covered by the blood of the Lamb is the next phrase in verse 11, and by the word of their testimony. Friends, what this does is it helps us better understand how works and salvation work together. We are not saved by our works. Do you please hear that? Because there's some religions out there, some that claim to be Christian, that would, would, would argue that. They may not say it out front, but by their practice, they would demonstrate that they believe what you do leads to your salvation. The Bible says what Christ did leads to our salvation. And so if we place our faith in that, and that's our trust, not in how many prayers we give, not in what confession we do, not in how many services we've attended, but instead the completed work in Christ, it will change us, and it will show by the testimony of our lives that we're changed. See, these are the parameters that the great programmer has established for the rest of the story. Programmer sovereign, verse 8, verse 9, verse 12. And these are the parameters for the protagonist because of the peak of the story of the tale as old as time. But there is a fourth aspect. Look at number four the patterns. The patterns. Verses 13 through 17 are intended to produce two reactions in us. You ready? These should scare us stiff. But then because of the blood of the lamb, we should have life breathed into us and be empowered. I love how the Old Testament that I'm reading through constantly reminds God's people to be strong and courageous, doesn't it? Would you write down Deuteronomy 31:23? I love this. Moses is on the mountain with Joshua, and they're looking at the promised land. And Joshua is looking at that promised land, 
And Moses says, I'm not going with you. You see all of that? You see all of those cities that you spied out? You see, remember, there's giants there? <laughs> That's on you, bro. He didn't say that that way. But, but what he does say that way is be strong and courageous. Think about Joshua 1.9, that same Joshua who was told to be strong and courageous looks out at the myriad of Jews in front of him, looks at the river in front of him that's in floodplain, that stepping out into it would be certain death, and yet God said, nope, you're supposed to go to the other side. That's what I'm instructing you to do. What does he say to the Jews? Be strong and courageous. That's what 13 through 17 is intended to produce within us. But we have to understand the significance That should scare us and get us to a place of reliance on the blood. Look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle. I hope by now you're saying, okay, well, let's not just look at what that verse says. Let's see what the rest of the Bible says. Let me give you some examples of where great eagle and eagle's wings are given. Exodus 19.4, back in the wilderness time of ethnic Israel, God promises to give them the wings of the eagles. Isaiah 40, verses 30 through 31, also describe the wings of eagles, but are now starting to apply that to a broader concept and not just ethnic Israel. When we see the flow of the New Testament, like Galatians 3.28, where it says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor free, or Greek, there's no distinctions. And so this is my question again. Some people will say, well, in the future, there's a future for ethnic Israel, that in heaven there's going to be different groups. But why would we go back? When the trajectory of the Bible is to move away from ethnicity, to move away from different groups, why do you think the plan would go back? I, I don't think that it does which will help us better understand what this is with the woman and the two eagles' wings. It also describes wilderness vocabulary, verse 14. And then, I think this is interesting, as the serpent and the dragon sends water out of his mouth for the purpose of drowning the woman, the people of God, it says, verse 16, that the the earth actually helps and opens up and swallows the water. Do you see that? You can also write down Exodus 15, 12. Same vocabulary is used for how the Red Sea played out. So, so what does this mean? Because some people would say, as you're reading the text, well, the woman must be Israel because she's taken away. And then verse 17, the dragon becomes furious with the woman and goes off to make war at the rest of her offspring. It appears that those are two separate groups. That's not what John's saying. What he's doing is he's used the the high level, he's used that summary statement to see that when when the serpent, when the dragon could not defeat the child, he turned his attention on the woman. Who is the woman? Well, that's, I think, the description of the rest of the offspring. What it's doing is it's saying, I'm differentiating between the offspring Christ and the offspring church. In other words, he's explaining that we are included. In case there was any question up to this point of who the woman is as a protagonist, he's saying here, listen, this is the rest of the offspring not including the child, not including Christ. And he is furious, and he makes war on us, the church, and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's how we can tell 
if we are truly his descendants. I think what's interesting is that this isn't probably new if you've been coming to this Revelation study, is it? I mean, yeah, there's different details. There's a great red dragon. There's earth opening up with water, but it's the same thing, isn't it? So the question then is, then why? Why does John keep doing this? Why are there still 11 more chapters? Why does he keep visiting the same thing over and over again? And I'll give you three illustrations, see if you can relate to any or all of these. When we had our building over at 159th and Black Bob, Heritage Christian Academy was the middle school and high school that rented from us. And I remember having my office on the corner, and so when the bell would ring, I would just sometimes just go out to my door and I would watch. And there were students that would go like this, with their backpacks bobbing in the back. And then there were kids that would be like, what's up, pastor? (laughs) Which one do you think was middle school and which one were the seniors? (laughs) Because the seniors understand there's patterns. And that doesn't mean they don't get stressed. It doesn't mean they don't have anxiety. It just is life experience and repetition that helps them understand what's going on. How about young parents? Especially parents with a first child. They are convinced that if my child does not get the nap at the right time, their whole future is stunted. It's the sacred cow. We can't do this activity because it's nap time. (laughs) I I, I joke about it because we were there. But man, by the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, some of y'all have seven kids. Y'all like nap. (laughs) That's a luxury. Why? Because we understand patterns. It informs how we respond and approach life. I'll give you a third one. This is one that I'm kind of in the in-between on. The future and finances and just life. And when you're in your 20s and 30s, like, the future is perplexing. It's stressful. Life circumstances, oh, my goodness, I'm waiting to hear back from the doctor that I might have a disease, I might have cancer. But old people are like, yep, (laughs) that's just life. Older people see the hand of God over the patterns of life that he, he provides, And that does not mean any of these things are unimportant. It does not mean that we shouldn't plan. It does not mean that that we shouldn't pay attention to these things. What it does is that the patterns inform how we see them, how we plan for them, how we respond to them. And that's the book of Revelation. For 65 books in the Bible, it's been unfolding, unfolding, unfolding. And now John is saying, let me just share with you how it all comes together. So here it is. How are we going to respond? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This is a story that is a tale as old as time. It's intended to inform us, to equip us, to to get us to a place so that no matter what happens today or what we anticipate tomorrow, we can conquer the serpent. So three questions to move this from deep study to personal application. The first one is this. Are you a member of the community? Are you part of the woman lead character in the story? Have you come to a place in your life where you have acknowledged you cannot save yourself? 
that God is rightfully condemning you to hell, not because of what you've done, but because of who you are. And you've recognized the only hope that you have in your life is to trust in the completed work of Christ. Have you called out to God and asked him to save you because of what Christ has done and committed your life to him? Well, friend, if you haven't, I beg you today. Today is the day on this Mother's Day, on this day of repetition. Please don't let this moment pass. If you want to know more information about it or if you give your life to Christ right now and just want to be directed to next steps, we'll have members of our prayer team at the ends of the platform. They would love to be able to assist you with that. But then my question to you is, is your confidence in the lamb? Or is your confidence in your skills, in your bank account, in your education, your relationship status, something that the world has to offer you? And listen, there, there's, there's good things with all of that. But that's not our identity. That's not our confidence. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to recalibrate between you and the Lord. My last question for you is, are you conquering? As you're watching the news and you're seeing evidence of the dragon and the stars that he swept to the earth, as you're looking at the evidence of your own sin in your life and the sins of others that is impacting you, as you're stressed about life, are you viewing all of this through gospel-centered lenses, understanding we're in the wilderness, We have the presence of God. Our destination is certain. And we have everything that we need for life and godliness through the means that he's put at our disposal. Are you using the means? Are you humbling yourself? Are the patterns of your life, that the thoughts, the speech, and the behavior of your life gives evidence that you are conquering? If not, would you recalibrate this morning? What an amazing chapter reminding us that we are in the midst of the tale as old as time. The king and his people win. Father, I thank you for this passage that even on a Mother's Day, I hope every one of us can find hope and help within it. Would you take it in our lives to first a place of learning that even though this might challenge long-held positions or things that we thought were true, that we would engage with your text and where it stands up under the evaluation of Genesis to Revelation, that it would actually move from learning to living. So that as we face the world around us, as we face this wilderness, that as the remaining six scenes will demonstrate, it's a hard place to live. That others will see us conquering and want to know how we're able to do that. And those will lead to conversations and responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you answer this through your Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.